Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 28, August Alley. Calder had political fixer written all over him. At first blush, he seemed too well-heeled to be associated with Wilmot and the Green Party, but I was going to be very surprised if she couldn't tell me who he was and where he fit into the San Francisco political scene. Besides, she was overdue with an update on her investigation into my favorite low-income housing developer, Ralph Wood. If it turned out that Calder was a crony of Wood's, who was I to complain? Theirs would be almost the first two dots I'd managed to connect in the picture. I jogged across Marina Boulevard to the Safeway, nicknamed Dateway for its popularity among the young Marina district crowd as a pickup spot, and sat down on the curb in front of the store. I used my cell phone to call Green Party campaign headquarters, recognizing the voice of the wiseacre with the teen abstinence t-shirt when he answered. I asked for Kathleen Wilmot. She's out of the office. Do you know when she'll be back? As soon as she gets her broom out of the shop? Cut the comedy. This is important campaign business. I heard him adjust the microphone on his headset. Then he came back on in a more confident tone. Hey, you're the guy who came in here yesterday, aren't you? What about it? I don't know what you said to them in that conference room, but you should have heard the yelling after you walked out. I have that effect sometimes. When's she coming back? Nobody knows. She missed a neighborhood breakfast event this morning. All us chickens figured it had something to do with your meeting. You mean she quit? Or was fired? I'm sure there's some other explanation. Look, you got a cell phone number for her? Nope, strictly need to know. Only the campaign bigwigs have it. How about an address? That I can do. Everyone has one on file. After a little rummaging, he read off an address in North Beach on, of all places, August Alley. That's good for both her and her brother. Now, since I gave you the address, are you sure you don't want to tell me what went on in the conference room? Very sure, I said and hung up. One of the few uses I'd made of the internet was to look up August Alley when I'd heard such a place existed in San Francisco. So, while I'd never been there, I knew exactly what and where it was, a tiny one-block alley between Union and Green Streets. The only significant reference I found to it on the web was a spoken word album called Beatsville, released by Rod McEwen in 1959. On a track called RSVP, with bongo drums bonging in the background, McEwen begins his description of a beatnik party with the line, Cranko's having a party at his pad on August Alley. 
I made a mental note to relay the cultural significance of her pad to Wilmot when I found her. I was sure she'd be a big fan of McEwen's effort, if for no other reason than her choice of headwear. I flagged a cab at the corner and we took Bay to Columbus and then right on to Green, where the driver pulled into a head-end spot on the hill, rising towards Mason and the Powell-Mason cable car line. Bells from a passing cable car and the clock tower of nearby Saints Peter and Paul Cathedral rang as I stepped out of the cab. It was 12 o'clock. The neighborhood was a mix of Victorians, fake Victorians, and blocky buildings from the 60s that weren't fooling anyone. August Alley itself was clean and neat, the modest, well-maintained houses along it jammed shoulder to shoulder. I went along a narrow sidewalk, past a brightly colored girl's bicycle with teal and silver fringes hanging off the handles, and up to a sawed-off pocket Victorian with the requisite number. It was painted blue with white trim, and a redwood fence ran from the back of it to an apartment building next door, enclosing a minuscule backyard. A frost-bitten orange tree with stunted fruit grew in the yard, dropping a harvest of curled leaves onto the sidewalk. There was no one else in the alley, but the sounds of a hammer and a circular saw filtered down from construction going on in the top floor of an apartment house at the corner with Union. I went up two concrete steps to the door and pressed the buzzer. It didn't produce any sound I could hear. I wadded up my fist and banged on the door. No soap. I stepped back to examine the front of the house. There were no windows facing the alley, but I could see the convex bubble of a skylight crusting over the edge of the roof line. I was fantasizing about climbing onto the roof to peek in or pry open the skylight when a car appeared at the Union Street entrance to the alley. It was a plain American sedan driven by a stocky guy with a buzz cut. He went by without glancing my way, but I caught sight of a light bar in the back window as he drove past. One of the new SFPD stealth cars. I tracked him until he turned left onto green and then gave my attention back to the house. If the Wilmots weren't home to talk to, I would be just as happy to toss their place, especially if the local beat cop had just finished his patrol. I considered my options. The skylight idea was too Mission Impossible-ish. Picking the lock was out. I'd left my picks at my apartment, and there was no mat for a key to be left under. That left boosting myself over the fence and breaking a back window, which I figured was just about my speed. All that figuring came to naught when I decided to knock on the door again, for safety's sake, and came to examine the rather unusual doorknob. It was painted white to match the house's trim and was in the shape of a fist holding a short rod. There was no lock built into it, so it turned freely when I twisted it. The door opened just as freely. The deadbolt hadn't been set. I slipped inside and locked the door behind me. The front room had a fireplace and a flat panel TV with a cluster of furniture, sofa, easy chair, and coffee table orbiting in front of them. A door on the right led off to the small kitchen, and a darkened hallway opened at the back. The ceiling was high, and there was a sleeping loft along the rear wall, reachable only by a rickety-looking ladder. Light came in from the two skylights, 
one near the front door and another larger one that looked like it could be open for ventilation over the loft. I crossed the room and prowled along the hallway. The first doorway I passed opened into a bathroom. The second led to a spare bedroom being used as an office, and the third, further down the hall, was closed. I spied a stack of documents in the office beside an industrial-strength shredder and decided to make that my first port of call after checking out the final room. Despite all my earlier knocking, the idea that Wilmot could still be home sick in bed worried me, and I certainly didn't want her surprising me while I ransacked the place. I crept up to the door of the last room and teased it open. I needn't have worried about Wilmot being sick. The two people inside were permanently immune. A sleigh bed with slats in the headboard and footboard dominated the room. Wilmot's brother lay face down, curled over a pile of pillows in the middle of the bed. His hands were cuffed together around a slat in the headboard. He was still wearing his skirt, but the back of it was flipped up to reveal his bare buttocks. Wilmot lay hunched on top of him with her thighs against his backside. She was naked from the waist down, except for the leather harness of a strap-on that projected out from her pelvis to be thrust in the only place it could be thrust. Her beret had fallen off and lay upside down on the floor beside the bed. Both had been shot in the temple at close range. Blood and brains from Wilmot were splattered over the bedspread, carpet, and bedroom wall. A tighter pool of gore congealed around her brother's head, a triangle of light from the bedroom window jabbing into it like a knife. There were other grim touches, like the open can of Crisco shortening on the nightstand and the ball gag in her brother's mouth. But the one that made me go numb was a Glock 19 on the carpet near the door, in just the position someone might ditch it after he or she had finished with the dirty work. I got down on my haunches and flipped the gun over with a pen to examine the serial number on the slide. It was my gun. The gun I had thought was in the evidence locker at South San Francisco Police Headquarters. No doubt the log would show that I had signed it out, and no doubt the ballistic tests would conclude that it had been used to kill both Guyberger and the Wilmonts. I brought my hand to my forehead and squeezed. That was when the pounding began. Not in my head, but on the front door. San Francisco Police Department, someone shouted. Open this door immediately. I hesitated only an instant before snatching up the gun. I doubted there would be fingerprints on it other than mine, and I didn't want to make the case against me any stronger by leaving it behind. The only question was how to make my exit. The front door was out. I figured there was another door off the kitchen, but they were probably swarming that one just as hard. I thought of my original Mission Impossible fantasy with a skylight and ran into the front room. I scurried up the ladder to the sleeping platform and then pulled the ladder up behind me, shoving it against the back wall. If I stood on the bed of the platform, I could easily reach the skylight, which, as I hoped, was hinged. I popped open the latches, took a bounce on the bed to get a running start, and chinned myself up to the edge of the opening. I slapped a forearm onto the asphalt roof tiles and half pulled and half pitched the upper half of my body onto the roof, 
as the sound of splintering wood came to me from below. I slithered the rest of the way onto the roof and pivoted onto my belly to lower the skylight back to the closed position. To my left was the end of the roof and the minuscule backyard. I could hear more cops down there, smashing the glass of a door or window. To the right, however, was a flat roof of one of the 60s buildings. I crawled to the edge of the Victorian's roof, risked getting three-quarters upright, and then leapt across the two-foot gap. I landed squarely on both feet, but rolled immediately onto the gravel, skinning the bejesus out of my palms and spotting my jacket and pants with tar. I elbowed and kneaded over to the back edge of the new roof and looked over. Somebody's carefully raked Japanese rock garden filled a 10 by 10 plot between the house and low wooden fence, and beyond that was another 60s vintage house that fronted Mason Street. I looked at the drop to the ground and grit my teeth. There was no way I was going to jump from that height in cold blood, so I lined myself up along the edge of the roof and then dangled my feet over the side. I slid more of my legs off, and then suddenly more of me snapped down like a clock hand, and I just managed to grip the edge of the roof to prevent a free fall to the ground. I dangled like that for a beat, gravel burrowing itself into my grasping fingers, and then I let go. I landed hard on the back of my heels, and then fell backward to enjoy a deep tissue rock massage on my ass and shoulders. I bit my lip to avoid screaming aloud, and arched my back to get a hand under my ass to rub my throbbing tailbone. A burp of siren from another cop car coming down the alley put an end to this moment of self-indulgence, and I scrambled to my feet and limped over to the back fence. This I hopped with relative ease, and then I made my way uphill, across an ill-kept backyard populated with children's toys, high weeds, and hidden deposits of dog shit to a gate that opened on Mason. There were no cops and very few cars or people moving in either direction for several blocks. I half-jogged, half-walked south on Mason until a cable car overtook me. I flagged it down and rode it back downtown, a little Chinese boy eating a pork bun, staring at the bloody scrapes on my knees the whole way. I went first to my apartment to clean up and change clothes. I grabbed more ammo for the Glock and took all the mad money I had out of its hiding place. I was in and out in about 20 minutes. I wasn't sure if the cops were already after August Rudin proper or just the guy who had surprised, or forced, the Wilmots in a tableau of incestuous S&M sex and then blown their brains out with a soon-to-be-identified 9mm gun, but I didn't like the odds either way. I decided to risk one more errand before going to ground for the day, and that was to talk with Chow. He wasn't at his office on Waverly Place, but he loomed lively, large, and loquacious behind a glass case in his store on Grant. He finished ringing up the sale of a pair of 895 Kung Fu slippers, passed them in a plastic bag to a 15-year-old kid with blackheads in a black duster, and said, Ah, Mr. Reardon, I'm seeing you more than I see my own grandkids, but I'm happy to be able to see you at all. 
especially after I read about your run-in with a woe-hop toe gang. It's not often that one chops the choppers and lives to tell about it. You don't know the half of it. That was three disasters ago. Do tell. I'd rather you do the telling. Do you know a guy named Arthur Calder? He nodded and reached down to straighten a row of Buddha ashtrays on the countertop. He's a windbag asshole. He's also the head of something called the San Francisco Home Builders League. Which does what? It's a trade group of contractors and construction workers. It's pro-development and is rumored to have its fingers in the Department of Building Inspections, where it uses its influence to expedite the review and approval of its members' projects. It also backs political candidates that are sympathetic to its cause. From what I understand of your and the Dragon Lady's politics, he would be an ally, but you just called him an asshole. Yes, a windbag asshole. The League gave some money to our campaign just to hedge their bets, but their main friend in politics is the current mayor, Charlie Hill. And since Hill has handpicked Loudon to be his successor, it follows that Calder and the League must be friendly with him too. Chow smiled and patted the head of one of the Buddhas. Yes, that's true as far as support for development goes. Loudon is definitely behind more housing for the middle class in San Francisco. But he's got a touch of the reformer in him, and I don't think he cares for the shenanigans alleged to be going on in the inspection office. Still, when all is said and done, Calder and the League are going to be behind Loudon and they're probably expecting that Loudon's allegiance and debt to Hill will hold him in check when it comes to shining sunlight into places that it doesn't belong. I picked up one of the ashtrays. The ashes were meant to go in a pond that opened before the squatting Buddha. A place to cool your tired butt was written at the bottom. I laughed. The more I learn about politics in San Francisco, I said, the more I want to move to Des Moines. How about a guy named Ralph Wood? Do you know him? Another asshole, but an asshole for the other side. He and Calder are mirror images of each other. They both want to build stuff and make money. The only difference is what they build, low-income housing or yuppie lofts. If they are so much alike, could they get past their differences and work together? Chow shrugged. It's possible they could make a deal, but one or the other would have to turn his back on their current political allies. What about Wu? Whose side would he be on? He has no sides. He works for himself and whoever pays the most. Chow reached across to take the ashtray from my hands. And as much as I like seeing you, Mr. Reardon, I must ask that you not stop by anymore. I can tell by your questions that you've dropped yourself into a pot of trouble. It worries me that you ask about Wu only as an afterthought. Ignore him at your peril. You have been listening to Runoff a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, 
spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.